This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have with us the executive editor of The American Mind, the online publication for the Claremont Institute, James Polis, and we're going to talk about how our tech shapes who we are. So we've been talking about the book of Deuteronomy for several weeks now, and it's got me thinking. Deuteronomy is the most important work in the history of political thought. It's an absolute classic. But as a matter of form or style, it's definitely an odd duck. So, like, compared to the other books of Moses, it's definitely a Where's Waldo scenario. So, for example, it's the only one of the five books of Moses that's just, like, one long speech. It's the funeral oration of Moses. Also, unlike the other books of Moses, Deuteronomy is meant to be a review of the earlier books rather than, like, a new thing in itself. Hence the name Deuteronomy, which means second law or law all over again. And finally, there's this fascinating ancient Jewish tradition, it's nearly 2,000 years old, that while the other books of Moses may or may not record events in sequence, so we can't necessarily learn anything from the fact that one passage occurs next to another, everyone agrees that everything in Deuteronomy is in precise order, so it's got a clear literary structure. So how did these massive differences affect ancient Israel, the most interesting civilization in history, to put it mildly? So here's where it's important to remember that the earlier books of Moses were given to and reflected the experiences of the generation of the Exodus, the generation that fled Egypt. But this generation dies out before it can make it to the promised land. And so when Moses delivers the final speech that is Deuteronomy, he's actually speaking to their children, to the next generation. Now, this generational transition is the beginning of a process that'll unfold in ancient Israel over the next six or 700 years a process that was deeply influential on how the greatest American thinkers from the founding to the Civil War to the New Deal to the Reagan Revolution, even to the present day, thought about the American experiment. And that is the transformation from a loose confederation of tribes into a mission-driven people from Israelites into Israel. And you can see this transition mirrored very clearly in the differences between the first books of Moses and Deuteronomy. So the earlier books of Moses are like much more helter-skelter. They narrate events at this furious pace only to take a huge book-long detour into describing the construction of one building, the temple, only to then resume the frenetic storytelling. And all the while, interspersed into the narrative are laws here and laws there. And it feels very decentralized and oral culture you know. But then Deuteronomy, the book for the next generation, actually feels more like a book. It's organized. It's got a well-defined structure. It's starting to shape a clear national who, why, and how. It's not an accident that the greatest political philosophers in Europe, the forerunners of the American founders, looked to Deuteronomy in particular and saw the blueprint for what they called the Hebrew Republic. So which came first, the generational transition or the shift in media form? So is Deuteronomy different because the Israelites were changing or were the people changing to adapt themselves to new media like Deuteronomy? So I don't have the answer, of course, but look, today we're in the midst of a massive transition in media culture, maybe several different transitions all at once, and also relatedly in the middle of a tech revolution. And the digital age, or whatever you want to call it, it's where we're at. And it seems like not a coincidence that Americans, at the very same time, have become deeply interested in questions of who we are and how we should live. So what is America's tech and its identity, its media and its spiritual hungers have to do with each other? 
So to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most incisive commentators in America today who thinks about these questions, who I read regularly, and you should too. He's the executive editor of The American Mind, author of an excellent book on Alexis de Tocqueville, The Art of Being Free, and a deeply thoughtful person whose writings, as I said, I really, really enjoy. He's James Polish. James, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ari. So it seems to me one of the most important transitions happening right now is how screens are changing. So I grew up in the tail end of an era when screen was a reference to your TV and what people meant by screen back in like the 80s or 90s and I think for several decades before that was this kind of clearinghouse where super creative people with unusual sensibilities could display their art for people. So it was a really curated experience and it was an artistic medium, even if it also very obviously accomplished other things like conveying correct opinions about everything from politics to childbearing to job hunting. But now screen is a reference to your phone. And what people mean by screen now is really different because it's not so much a clearinghouse for a select number of geniuses to get their art out there. So our screens are repositories of like all knowledge. They know everything. It's not a curated experience at all. So how do you think about this transition and how should it shape our expectations for the next generation of the way we interact with media and it interacts with us? Well, you're right, of course. Marshall McLuhan, not famously, although that's too bad. He should be famous, at least for having said that artists are our early warning systems. And I think what you're describing is a transition where we went from a culture that was powerfully influenced by artists who are able to see things coming that the rest of us were not, to one in which the reality is that most of the innovative technology that penetrates our lives and suffuses our world is really repurposed or discarded military technology. And if you go back, as Thomas Ridd did in his book, The Rise of the Machines, his cybernetic history, he tracks how the development of our actual early warning systems, you know, the military ones, was you know, funded on a massive scale by government research and development, drove the production and creation of you know, what were at the time supercomputers or a super network of, of computers. And really from that time in the late 40s, military technology began to lead the way in the development of computers, digital technology. And we transitioned away from a world in which a tinkerer or an inventor hanging out in private life would unlock the secrets of electricity to one in which, you know, people were really in a much more passive condition of just sort of receiving whatever technological runoff came from the innovation spurred by R&D by the military industrial complex. So in that sense, the capacity of the culture to surface people who did function as sort of early warning systems was really blunted and our culture reoriented itself toward a very passive attitude to technology where we sort of sat around waiting for military scientists really, including in the intelligence community as the NSA came to become you know, more important in many ways than the Pentagon. And then we would just wait for those things to be packaged for us in a way that creatives would then present as having these new and wonderful like magic benefits for ordinary people. There's so much in that answer that I want to dig into. I think maybe I'll get to Tocqueville a little earlier than I was than I was expecting. But is this kind of what Tocqueville warned about in the sense that once you get to the beginning of the 20th century or maybe like the first quadrant of the 20th century, Americans have kind of thickened the into the scientific revolution and the Industrial Revolution has had plenty of time to play out and work out a lot of its kinks. 
And Americans are now pretty satisfied, or at least a subset of Americans are pretty satisfied with how things are going. And now that we've accumulated all of this wealth, even if we haven't distributed it well, but we've accumulated all of this wealth. So now all of that dynamism that Tocqueville observed early on in American life will have dissipated because people will just be dedicating all of their time to just keeping what they've gotten rather than trying to advance further. So is satisfaction with culture and just being happy with whatever runoff comes from the major complexes that we've built up over two centuries of American life? Like, isn't that what you would expect if you read Tocqueville? It is. There's a lot at stake here. So uh, Tocqueville's idea of soft despotism is one that is still pretty well known, at least in modestly intellectual circles. This idea that what Americans should be concerned about is not what he put some emphasis on in the first volume of Democracy in America, which is rule by a single man or rule by the tyranny of the majority, which are sort of the two defaults of politics in a democratic age. Right, either tyrants or the mob. Right. He was worried about those things. In volume two, he shifts away from both of those kinds of critique toward the soft despotism that we're talking about, which is one where, you know, the all-powerful government is not in the hands of a single person, but it's also not really under the control of the mob. And it becomes this sort of bureaucratic entity that penetrates down into the intimate details of everyone's lives and progressively removes responsibility and agency from the people. So the people gradually become accustomed to the idea that like, well, we don't really need to do anything. I think there are implications there that, you know, people did realize eventually that they don't really need to acquire things, like they can let go of their acquisitiveness. They don't really need to own things. This is the memes that the World Economic Forum is cranking out now. In the future, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's the kind of thing that Tocqueville was most worried about by the end of his 10-year process of writing Democracy in America. And so, you know, the way that I would characterize that is is that he was concerned that politics would begin to reflect the secret longing that he describes in volume two among the people for a kind of pantheism as their religion, where the distinction between creator and created offended their democratic sensibility that wanted to find unity in everything, a cosmic unity that was transcendent, that included everything in sort of one big basket of the all. And so if pantheism, you know, he's, he described this as the biggest danger facing people in a democratic age spiritually, this desire to break down the boundary between creator and created and worship allness, the sort of cosmic unity. What does that look like in political life? Well, what it looks like is a government by the all, which sounds strange to our ears, but in today's technological environment, what we're starting to see is the push of our automated machines toward this kind of universal perpetual existence where we already have a functionally infinite number of of entities of digital entities right now they're everywhere and nowhere at the same time they have properties that we usually in the past have associated only with angels and demons we've kind of reached that singularity and the desire that i think you can see you know it makes people feel uncomfortable but just look at the fruits of what's going on there's a sense that ultimately we've tried sort of humanity and reality's rough and it has unequal outcomes and there's a lot of suffering. And so, you know, we thought that democracy would save us. That didn't really work. We thought that the experts would save us. Well, that didn't really work either. And so now the experts are saying, well, we're going to build these machines. And then if we can just make sure that the machines are everywhere and can do everything and that they're, you know, ethical in some way, maybe we can talk about that in a bit. Then in machines we trust, 
And we can sort of hand over all of, of the responsibility for human life, not to a soft despotic government run by people, run by offices, but run by machines. So I want to pick up on that because I think one of the really fascinating things about our tech and its ability to deliver the kind of virtual goods, like the pacifying virtual goods that you've just been talking about, is actually <laughs> like super unequal, right? So of the real world experiences that people care a tremendous amount about, so probably the most elemental one is marriage, relationships, or maybe sex, right? So sort of all the things that come along with that complex. And one of like the really, well, I know there's not a lot that's stable in social science these days, but one of the pretty well-established findings is that one of the problems that we have now is with like assortative mating and the idea that it's much more common now for people of similar social classes to get together and the idea of people from different social classes getting together is just much more a thing of the past. So what's happened is that our bots, as you put it, have gotten really good at delivering virtual experiences that seem pretty scalable, but only delivering them, at least right now, to a particular class of people. So when you say well, we have to worry about the soft despotism of bots, right, isn't that soft despotism or the governed by the all just really illusory even in theory, right? Because it's delivering what seems like something very scalable, like automated machines, work from home. Like these are things that seem super scalable and that seem like everybody can do them. But if you just take work from home is a good example, you just take the pandemic. Like I have friends who you ask them, like, what was work from home? Like, and they're like, what are you talking about? I never worked from home. Like I went in every single day. I'm a plumber or I went in every single day. I'm an electrician. There was no work from home for me. So is part of the issue here that our bots kind of seem very scalable, but aren't actually? Well, so let's go back to, and you know, you, you can't see this on the audio, but I did put ironic scare quotes around ethical when I was talking about <laughs> ethical bots. And this is why we live in a society where many people are more or less convinced that there is nothing left for us to place our hope and our trust in except for technology. You know, we've tried everything else. We tried religion. We tried like representative government. We've tried all kinds of things, you know, monarchy, empire. And what do we have to show for it? Well, like this massive crisis that seems to be saturating everyday life and no one quite knows what to do about it. It's hard to describe. It's overwhelming. It's paralyzing. And so perhaps if technology got us into this mess in some sense, as a result of our attempts to, to perfect society in spite of, of our inescapable flaws, well, then maybe the answer is just to fully place our trust in technology. And even, even our woke friends on the left who are in some ways very strong critics of technology, nevertheless, they do not want to break the ring. They want to wear the ring. They do not want to eliminate facial recognition. They want to make sure that facial recognition is not racist. They do not want to eliminate artificial intelligence. They want to make sure that artificial intelligence has been catechized by Ibram X. Kendi. And so this idea that, you know, yes, we are now thrown back on the resources of science and technology, but that rather than trying to impose salutary limits that ensure that human vitality and divine authority can exist, in our space time, you know, we just need to impose sort of ethical programming into these machines so that they will be perfect in the way that we need them to be perfect. So, you know, what I'd like to see is I would like to see more Americans realizing 
that we do need to put some limits and some curbs on technological development rather than trying to create a truly perfect technology, which is imbued with an ethical framework that is generated by self-appointed experts. So I want to come back to a lot of that, but I want to take one piece of that, and that is the idea of catechizing bots, because to me, that's just, it's so fascinating. It's something you've written about, and it's, I think, the central struggle that defines this particular moment. But I want to put a personal spin on it for a moment. So I live in a suburban community, and if you ask me, like, I think we just had local elections. It's very possible that we did. I did not know anything about any of the candidates When I go to public functions in my community, whether it's like, you know, one of my kids' soccer games or whether it's going to like an ice cream truck on the corner, all the decisions that go into how we behave in those situations, I've totally irresponsibly outsourced them to local politicians and school board members who, if you ask me my opinion, I think are doing a terrible job. But the truth is, like, I would have no idea. I just assume they're doing a bad job. Now, that looks very much like the kind of soft despotism that Tocqueville envisioned. However, I also live in a really, really thick religious community. It's funny. I feel like people just assume that like all Orthodox Jews are rabbis. So I'm an Orthodox Jew. I also just happen to be a rabbi. But the least interesting thing about me. So I live in this very thick, like deeply committed religious community where the aspiration that my teachers and parents and and elders have for me is that at every second I should be thinking about how does God want me to tie my shoe? How does God want me to enjoy this meal? That kind of thing. And part of what I think has happened is that the reason that I care so little about local politicians on the school board or in kind of local government in my suburban area, even though I probably should care more about them, but I just have so much going on. <laughs> and it's not just me. I, like everybody that I know has so much going on. We have synagogues and we have prayer and we have study and we have rituals and we have all these things. And I think that to the extent that Tocqueville, to bring it back to Tocqueville now, kind of observed something odd in American life, it was that it had this weird combination of these strong religious attachments and this democratic tradition. Now, Tocqueville thought that America had, like, solved that tension. But I think it's just as likely that America just ignored that tension. And so the real problem today would then be that so many Americans have lost the ability to live with that tension. And I would be one of those people. I've chosen to accept the soft despotism because I'm very lucky to have this sort of rich religious life that I know will exist in a thousand years long after America as I know it has disappeared. But many, many people don't have that option to like check out the way that I have. So they either redirect their religious impulses into mastering the political sphere, into catechizing bots, or they just give up. Right. But wouldn't that be like the central problem that the role that religion has played in public life is now no longer religion. It's something else. Well, there are always good reasons to blame ourselves for our predicaments. But sometimes the logic tree is not what it first appears or only what it first appears to be. Uh, So I I think an important reason why local government seems to have collapsed in a way, if you go back to Tocqueville's introductory writings in Democracy, he spends a lot of time talking about the small town, the township. And what he says about the township 
is really that democratic life in the township where people come together face to face are obliged in order to govern themselves to exit the brooding of their heart and turn outward instead of inward and and encounter their fellow citizens, their neighbors face to face mediated by God. The reason why that works is because of the anthropological character of the township or the small town. He says that it's big enough that it fulfills the sort of salutary pride that a man can take in knowing that he is present in his surroundings and has some kind of stake in his surroundings. But it's not so large that it becomes alienating or that it gives him delusions of grandeur or it makes him want to be a petty tyrant. There's something about the township, about the small town that is right-sized for a Republican form of government at its lowest level. And today, you know, people who live in small residential areas, you know, usually they're suburbs that are part of this cosmopolitan blob with some kind of, you know, urban core in the middle of it. And there isn't a small town for them to be part of in that sense. And those small towns that still do exist have oftentimes been totally colonized and culturally strip mined by international corporations. I mean, it's it's an Exxon and a McDonald's and the devil take the hindmost, you know? And that has a real damaging effect on the way that Americans think about self-government and the limits of their ability to participate in local government. And those kinds of arrangements have only been worsened psychologically by the rise of television and now by the rise of social media. And so the people who are left running the town council meetings, you know, are typically like, uh, I'm not here to cast aspersions on anyone, but we know the type, you know, they're, they're sort of mothballed boomers who are starting to lose their mental acuity and... In the immortal words of another mothballed boomer, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you, you sit around in these linoleum-floored rooms and sort of droning on about, you know, it's just make, you, you're better off staring at the wall and sort of thinking, thinking about how your day went. Until that changes, I don't think there is going to be relevant local government for younger people. And those energies are going to be pushed to a level that stirs passions that cannot be satisfied and generates a feeling of, of harm or transgression that cannot be repaired. It's possible that technology can help us here, you know, a little bit. I mean, there's no going back from the digital world that we've entered into without some kind of horrendous cataclysm. And there are ways that we can make the best of it. I mean, it's not difficult to envision how a group of young, competent, ambitious people who've maybe created a signal chat where they can complain or spitball ideas or just check in throughout the day, how a group like that, you know, would want to throw a happy hour party periodically or a house party. And you get everyone in one room and you're sort of talking about what's going on in the world today and what's going on in your town. People rise to, you know, levels of, you know, significant but ultimately modest importance in their local community. And they start thinking like, we should formalize this and say, down around the table and actually try to take some control of what's going on. You know, I mean, there are going to be drones flying around in towns and cities all across America. And there are big questions about, you know, who gets to decide sort of like how that should work. Um, who gets to decide whether you want to have to like trip over the Domino's pizza bot every day or the Amazon bot, you know, these corporations are introducing their machines into our cities and towns. And it's kind of an open question who is going to exercise the sovereignty of self-governance over these entities. Um, that's one example of how I think social media, but slanting away from the big platforms allows, you know, younger people who do have a stake in their communities 
to start understanding the value and the benefit of local government. So, you know, things are in flux right now, and there's still a lot of room for people to rediscover the truth of what Tocqueville was telling us, which is, you know, the art of being free is brings great benefits, but it's one of the hardest to learn. And it's one of the hardest to learn because you can really only understand it in Tocqueville's idiom if you are plunged repeatedly into the intimate details of our shared lives instead of, you know, farming those out to some apparatus in a faraway, yet paradoxically, much too close sort of way. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So listeners to this podcast will know that I'm like a super tech optimist. And as I've also said a lot of times, I recognize and identify with the messianism or the eschatology in like tech at its most utopian, because I think that the only source of that kind of thinking for the last, you know, several thousand years has been religion and biblical religion in particular. And I'm glad to finally have sort of like a new competent partner in that. And that I also think that sort of the utopianism of tech is like completely unsustainable and maybe even incoherent without biblical impulse and (laughs) biblical religion's ability to build hardware for the next generation, namely like actual people. But if what you're saying is correct in a very different way than I'm saying, shouldn't people like yourself be, or maybe sort of like people on the right, let's say, or right of center, shouldn't people be committed to being like wild tech optimists, if only for the sake of that way, you'll be the first to be able to catechize your bots. And if you're not, aren't you sort of like de facto surrendering? You may be a post-liberal or you may be something else, but shouldn't you want to be the first person to win that race? Uh, To a degree. This is complicated in some ways, but I think fairly straightforward in others. I mean, a lot of the wildest tech optimists out there have no religion whatsoever. They think that we don't need one and that technology will indeed uh, turn us into gods. Right. And so of what use to a god is religion? In that sense, there is no catechizing the bots from that standpoint. There is becoming one with the bots. They are the bots, right. <laughs> right. Um, whereas, you know, I think, I think the, the better posture is to recognize that we will never become gods, not as a result of imbuing technology with some spirit that we summon forth, you know, that spirit will come either from the good side or the bad side. And human beings are notorious for confusing the two and causing huge problems. So some people call them civilization states or, you know, ancient cultures. Every big country in the world that has its own powerful, distinctive culture, and usually that means its own religion, is confronting this crisis right now and is grappling with the problem of how to continue their existence, their flourishing in a digital time. And so to return to this issue of catechizing the bots, I mean, for some of these countries, countries that we see as adversaries or at least rivals, the road is going to be more straightforward than it is for us in America. Russia has basically one historic religion, Eastern Orthodoxy, which is very strong in the country relative to others. I mean, it's not like everyone in Russia is is devout Eastern Orthodox, but there is the question of, well, how do we catechize our bots is I think not a complex one in Russia. It doesn't create major political questions. In China, Taoism is on an upswing. I think the best of the leadership class in China is rushing into the social credit system that they're doing, not because they enjoy being bad guys. You know, I think they're doing it because they realize that after Mao and after Deng, the moral fabric of China was really ripped away 
and the Cultural Revolution sort of took everything away from China. And then capitalism was flown in and it turned people into amoral, sort of greedy, you know, avaricious capitalists, but also into conformists where, you know, the only thing that really differentiates people in their own minds is, you know, how expensive their car is, how much money they can flex with. And so the Taoists in China are thinking like the only way that we can restore a unifying moral fabric to our people so that their minds aren't completely blown away by technological advancement is to use our social credit system to catechize them back into a kind of Taoism, a kind of digital Taoism. Or like um, a Han, or like a Han supremacy, which is also bad, right? <laughs> like, well, so the the racial thing is a different question, but you know, ultimately, it's it's going to be religious questions about what's the why bother being human? Why bother being good? Why bother having children? What what evidence is there that being human is good news and that it's better to be a human being than to be a bot? And those are questions that ultimately only some kind of religion can answer. Technology isn't capable of answering those questions on its own. India is another one, right? Where there's like a clear sort of native religion. And if India is trying to figure out how to catechize their bots, the obvious answer is to look to Hinduism. And the Islamic countries are going to encounter similar situations. In the U.S., it's different. America has always been a syncretic country, but also a pluralistic country. And it isn't quite the one religion fits all scenario that it is in other countries. Yes, you know, Protestantism has been dominant in America. David Glarnter has a book back from 2007 called Americanism, the West's fourth great religion. Um, and he shows, you know, just to get back to Deuteronomy, he shows quite convincingly that it wasn't just that America was ruled culturally and, and increasingly politically over the years by Protestantism but that the political theology of America was a specifically Hebraic kind of Protestantism. Joshua Mitchell you know, has written, I think, very convincingly on how if you go back to Hobbes and Locke, what you see is, uh, you know, is, is this pattern beginning to emerge even before America gains its independence, where Protestants trying to figure out how to establish a stable political theology in the era of print technology look to the Old Testament. You know, they, they don't look to the New Testament. They don't want to say like, well, well, we'll do the Catholic thing and focus on the New Testament and, you know, sort of Rome or the Vatican. You know, there's sort of kings who are in good standing with the church. That's going to be our model. Instead, they say, no, we got to go back to, you know, to the ancient Republic of Israel. Right, like Eric Nelson's writing about how like Milton, Algernon, Sidney, Shikar, they're actually looking to like rabbinic literature in, in interpreting the Old Testament, right? So in interpreting the Hebrew Bible, right? So it's Hebraic. You have Locke rooting his political theology, not in Christ, but in Adam. So, you know, the new Adam in the new world, who is a Lockean, sort of goes out into nature, has a sort of divine warrant to begin human society anew, in a sense, you know, to go out into the wilderness and mix his labor with nature. And uh, and so Adam is the key to, to Locke's political theology. And for Hobbes, it's Moses. It's Again, it's not Christ. Hobbes was very intently focused on the idea that, you know, the only way that you can establish and preserve legitimate authoritative political order, national order, the political structure of the nation is the one ruling over the many with not much in between. Very mosaic model. You know, he wanted government to be like a mortal god. That was the thrust of Leviathan. And in the U.S., coming out of Puritan theology and then post-Puritan theology, I think you get both of those strains where Americans begin to converge on this idea that we're all, in a sense, the new Adam in the new world. But also, you know, it's uh, America's the promised land. And the promised land has a Moses. And in that sense, you know, our president, the head of state, 
really should be this sort of tremendously powerful figure under whom, you know, all these new atoms building this new society can gather. And so you get a very messianistic America that comes out of that. And it's been very powerful right up until the failed war on terror, which really put a hole in that balloon and made a lot of Americans, even more so than Vietnam, start to question the fundamental premise of, you know, this kind of biblical religion of Americanism. It does seem to be coming back now, though, with the idea that, you know, on the left, they route around the, the failures of those wars and they say, well, we're just going to, you know, we're going to queer the world. We're going to get everyone in the world to wear a rainbow flag and take the knee during their sporting events and, you know, put up the BLM fist. And that is how we are going to Americanize the world. So, you know, the left is busy trying to make good on these deep-seated patterns of American political theology. Uh, in a you know in a way that you know th that traditionalist Americans do not like, but but which they feel you know oftentimes powerless to stop simply because they do rely so heavily on patterns of thinking and patterns of feeling that have been present in some ways from the beginning in America. Now the issue is, in spite of all of this you know unionist in the grand sense feeling around forging one America that has this divine mission that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation and is destined to convert the world, really. When you look under the covers, what you see is that America is irreducibly pluralist, that sectional regional differences still do matter, that there are you know more different denominations and, and sects religiously than there are anywhere else in the world. And that's not going to go away. And trying to stamp those out is incompatible with our form of government, and it's incompatible with the mores and the norms of the people. And so that means that catechizing the bots for us is going to be a special challenge, and it's going to require a degree of forbearance and willingness to let smaller groups closer to the ground instill in their machines different sets of values. It's going to require a different kind of statecraft. And it's going to require an uncharacteristic amount of humility in some senses for Americans, but also, uh, you know, is, is uh, hopefully, I think, going to redirect um, much of the energy that has been squandered just trying to remake the world in our image and focus on restoring to our lives the kind of robustness and piety that has been distinctively missing in America over the past, you know, since the 60s, really. My last point would be I was recently talking to my friend Samuel Goldman, who has a wonderful book out now called After Nationalism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about was how precisely what you're describing, sort of the irreducible pluralism at the heart of the American project. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it's precisely for that reason that Jewish thought and Jewish thinkers are even more essential now than they were and they very considerably were at the founding or even during the Civil War. And that's because the way in which mainline Protestantism as American political theology has run out of gas is in the fact that at the end of the day, there's no way to escape kind of the universalizing tendency at the heart of mainline Protestantism, all Protestantism, and, and ultimately sort of the larger project there, which is proselytizing, right? Meaning America has sort of like a proselytizing impetus to it. And so does mainline Protestantism just as much as any other form of Protestantism, maybe even less than other forms of Protestantism. But what you have in Jewish thought, which is very helpful, and in Hebraic thought, the kind upon which Milton and Shikard and Algernon Sidney were drawing, I think very helpfully, 
is a sort of pluralism that A, is very comfortable with not proselytizing, doesn't see any impetus to proselytize, and at the same time, sort of has this very strong, like, Isaiah, Micah 4 tradition of saying, you know, in the end of days, it's not like everyone's going to become Jewish in the end of days. Everyone's going to be the best version of their tradition at the end of days. Moabites will be Moabites, Ammonites will be Ammonites, and Israelites will be Israelites. They'll just be sort of like perfected forms of that. So it's not, on the one hand, the kind of tribalism of Aryan master race thinking that ultimately says there's only one group we care about and the rest, who cares? But it's also not sort of the universalism of saying ultimately we have to proselytize everybody into our particular way of thinking. It's pluralistic in ways that kind of honor a variety of stories. So if there were to be kind of like a moment for political Judaism, like now would probably be it. <laughs> I don't know how that strikes your mainstream political thinker. They may not just be familiar enough with those kinds of traditions. You know what I mean? Well, I think, you know, again, the, the patterns of thought at work here and the nature of democratic life are such that it would be very difficult to somehow theoretically expunge the influence of Hebraic political theology from American life. And so, you know, when I encounter people on the internet who are like, well, you know, obviously the problem is that there are just too many like secular Jews sort of like screwing with American sovereignty and we just get rid of them somehow, you know, go home to Israel and the problem will be solved. My faves. <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it is a misunderstanding of the current situation and the roots of that situation. You know, the concern that I would want Jewish Americans to share with me is that at the end of the day, Israel and now post-imperial Britain are small republics, if you want to call them republics. They're small nation states. And the U.S. is a large nation state. And the experience of space and time that Americans have as a result of living in a bountiful, large, continent-sized nation-state is just going to result in fundamentally different political arrangements than what you find in a small nation-state. The founders, you know, and the Federalists were focused very intently on this question of space and time and size. They said, you know, there have been lots of small republics throughout history. Some of them lasted a while, some of them didn't. There's never been a large republic before. And so we need a new political science and we need new political arrangements to ensure that a large republic can endure. And what you have seen historically coming out of the relationship between the U.S. and Britain, and Britain has, you know, of course, been influenced very strongly in its own way by Hebraic political theory, but also by Jewish politicians and financiers and businessmen and so on. The template for Hebraic Protestant politics as a global enterprise that was set in England is one that I think over time has kind of colonized American politics. The links between American and British intelligence, for example, that grew up in the wake of World War II, really resulted in sort of an independent governing entity that was international and that did have a sort of messianic bent to it that developed out of the Protestant you know, WASP sensibility which as it acquired greater and greater technological prowess became increasingly distant from any kind of oversight or control by the American people. 
I think that's a problem that we're still sort of dealing with today, where the military industrial complex is incredibly powerful. There are no restraints or guardrails on what kind of innovation that it can undertake or why. That our relationship with the British seems to be good on the one hand, and obviously there are some deep civilizational ties. But on the other, you know, they do remain a monarchy and they do have a different idea of wasp eschatology than the one that is shared, I think, by most of the American people. And so what I think is important for elites to understand is that you cannot force America to become the locus of human perfection and progress in the world without ultimately violating America's form of government in a way that's going to result in serious civil conflict. James, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Thanks for being on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I love the way James put that question. Why be human? Why is being human better than being a robot? That's really the defining question of this era. Not because we're close to being able to replace everything humans currently do with robotic versions of the same. We're not. At least I don't think we are. We're automating away all the jobs has always been overhyped. I think the more serious challenge we're confronting is that our bots have advanced to the point where humans are okay with being less than they're capable of being. We can make complex moral decisions ourselves and build robust communities that support human flourishing ourselves and do it better than robots ever could. But honestly, that's really hard. And isn't it easier to just program a bunch of machines to make decisions and abandon community for the attractions of our screens? So the challenge we're facing isn't in the end a technological one at all. It's not even really a political one, or at least the politics is downstream of something else. No, really it's a spiritual question we're confronting. Why is it so valuable and wonderful to be human, even when being human and having a soul will always be messier and harder than being an angel or a robot? If we can make that case in the coming generation, why be human, then we'll have made a real, true, lasting advance in the search for meaning and godliness. Anyway, thanks so much for joining me today in Good Faith Effort. And if you like what you heard, well, rate us and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And let me know what you thought on Twitter or Instagram so I can tell everyone that you are awesome. This has been Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.